Good morning, Disciples Church. I'm Dan Green. It's my privilege to read scripture for today. Luke 19, 28 through 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he had sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent, to, sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Dan. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Disciples Church. It is great to see you as always. Uh, we are so very glad that you have joined us in worship today. Uh, my name is Dave Hahn. I'm one of the pastors here at Disciples Church, and it is my privilege to be able to open God's Word with and for you this morning. So in 2006, uh, I had the extraordinary privilege to visit the Democratic Republic of Congo on a mission trip with about 10, 11 other folks. In a lot of ways, going to the Democratic Republic of Congo, especially as a white man, is a lot like jumping right into the pages of a National Geographic. A lot of the kids have never seen a white person before. So they rub your skin looking to see if the white's going to come off and they want to touch your hair. I had hair then. And they would want to rub my hair and see what that felt like compared to what their hair felt like. So it was very strange to jump into it. And they would follow you down the streets. It was like a purple panda had landed into their, into their nation. And so that's kind of what we had represented. And I could really tell more stories. I could tell them for days about the things that we saw and the things that we had experienced. And one story that I would tell is how we were greeted by the Congolese people whenever we came upon a new town. We traveled in vans, and whenever we would enter a town, the streets would be lined up with people. So several people deep, both sides of the street, and they would be cheering and clapping and playing music. I mean, we looked behind us to see if there was a presidential, you know, cavalcade or something coming behind us because it made no sense to us that that cheering and clapping and yelling would be for us. But when we asked about this really unmerited, certainly unmerited welcome, we got this explanation. They see your coming as a sign of hope. The way that they see it Things must be getting better in Congo if Americans are willing to visit. Now, personally, I was uncomfortable but also humbled with this kind of treatment, and I remember thinking, we cannot sustain the hope that they seem to have placed in us. 
And after some reflection, I came to realize and understand that they were really in the midst of a very, very long and dark period of their country's history where millions and millions of people had been killed through tribal wars and, had, had, and women had been raped and kids had been taken and all kinds of horrible, awful things. And all they needed in light of that was the tiniest glimmer of hope and light, regardless from where or from whom it came. What they needed was hope. And that glimmer is what we represented by coming to visit with them and be with them. In their view, our visit to Congo and our time with them gave them a reason to shout and to cheer. And my friends, so it is with all of mankind including the people of Jesus' day. My friends, everyone needs hope. Everyone needs a reason to rejoice. But there is only one, there is only one who can both provide and sustain the hope that we have. And there is only one who is worthy of rejoicing in. So in today's text, Jesus and his disciples had reached the destination that they had been heading for basically for the last three years of Jesus' life in his public ministry. They had finally reached Jerusalem, specifically the last week of Jesus' life on earth, though only he understood it to be so. And today's passage describes Jesus' entrance into the holy city where everything that God had long declared would happen did happen. Thousands of years of history, dozens of prophets, and hundreds of prophecies were all about to be proven true. And though Jesus knew in full the betrayals and the injustices and the beatings and the ultimate brutal death that he awaited him, he pressed on with purpose and he pressed on in obedience because it was for this week alone that he was born. He was born to die. So let's look again at verses 28 through 34. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as they had told him. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Now the gospels don't necessarily make clear what we now know to be true of Jewish men and women that it was common for the people of Israel to make several pilgrimages to Jerusalem throughout one's life and participate in as many of the major Jewish feasts in that holy city as possible. And we know from the other Gospels that this was not Jesus' first time in Jerusalem. We know that he was there just days after his birth, he was there all throughout his youth, and we know that he had visited Jerusalem several times during his public ministry. In fact, Jesus' final visit to Jerusalem 
finishes with him standing in the very temple in which he was circumcised. And it is that same temple where the 12-year-old Jesus was found teaching and proclaiming the word of God to those who were listening. That temple. But that is not, obviously, where today's story begins. It begins just outside of Jerusalem in Bethphage and Bethany, which were nearby cities that sat at the foot of the Mount of Olives, about a mile or two outside of Jerusalem. And according to verse 28, Jesus resolutely set out ahead of the others. Did you catch that? That he set out to all that awaited him in Jerusalem. There was no hesitation, just resolution. It was in this region that Jesus sent two of his disciples to get some transportation. And it was the mode of transportation, a donkey in particular, that mattered greatly. Not because Jesus was tired of walking, but because riding into Jerusalem upon a donkey would help identify him as Messiah. Zechariah chapter 9 verses 9 reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. There are over 400 prophecies in the Old Testament telling God's people who the Messiah would be, what he would do, and when and how he would come. And Jesus fulfilled all of them, including the one about Israel's true king and God's Messiah, riding a donkey into its most holy city. By riding atop a donkey into Jerusalem, Jesus was declaring himself to be Messiah, publicly and unapologetically. And both his disciples and his enemies knew it. This visual of him being atop a donkey as he rode into Jerusalem was not lost on anyone. Now, Apart from the prophetic fulfillment of Jesus riding a donkey, it also spoke of the manner in which Jesus was entering into Jerusalem. To enter a city on a colt or on a donkey rather than a war horse or a chariot as a conquering king would was a posture of peace. It was not a posture of war. No conquering king rode anywhere atop a donkey. But Jesus did. And by riding atop a donkey, the Prince of Peace, Jesus himself, declared his intent and what his mission was. Just as much as it declared what his mission was not. As one commentator said it, the entry into Jerusalem has been termed the triumph of Christ. And it was indeed It was the triumph of humility over pride and worldly grandeur. The triumph of poverty over affluence. And the triumph of meekness and gentleness over rage and malice. 
Now, verses 30 and 31 are relatively fascinating as to the details that they offer. In that, Jesus gave his disciples some very specific instructions. Verse 30 reads, Go into the village in front of you. This is Jesus speaking. Where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now we are not told and we do not know which two disciples Jesus sent. But putting myself in either of their shoes, I would have found these instructions to be very strange. These things that Jesus were telling me to do and these things that he seemed to know would have felt very strange. And honestly, I may have anticipated a night in prison for property theft. But the disciples, these two disciples, did as Jesus commanded. And things happened exactly as Jesus said they would. Are we surprised? I mean, he is God after all. But what about these people who owned this donkey and who questioned the disciples. Why did they let the disciples take the donkey? Did they know Jesus so they heard his name and they just knew? Did Jesus somehow prearrange borrowing this donkey? Or were they on the other end of some kind of Jedi mind trick that forced them to kind of let the donkey go? We really don't no, for sure. But here is the underlying beauty in these verses, my friends. Here is the underlying beauty. God's will was accomplished in a very unusual way through obedience to an unusual command. God's will was accomplished in an unusual way through an obedience to an unusual command. And here is why that matters to you and to me. My friends, if, if God leads you or me to say something to someone or to do something for someone, no matter how strange it may seem to us, we have the opportunity to be like the two disciples and the owners of the donkey and obey him. He might just be using us to accomplish his perfect will in a way that the owners of the donkey and certainly the donkey itself could have never known. We do not know what significant thing God has in mind when he asks us to do or to say something that might seem strange to us. So when you find yourself in need and you cannot imagine how God is going to provide be like the disciples and understand that the means through which God provides for his children may come about in an unusual way, but it will come. When you find yourself in need, understand that God may provide that answer in an unusual way, but he will provide. Now, I ask this question often of myself. I have asked it of others, and I think it makes sense to ask ourselves these things again and again. And it is this. When has God not provided for you? Think back through the whole of your life. When has God not provided for you? When has he not given you at least what you need? 
And in providing for you, as you consider and think about those things, ask yourself, and how often has his provision come in a time and in a manner which I expected? When has he not provided for me? And then in providing for me, when has he provided in a time and in a manner and in a place that I expected? My friends, all you need and all that he wants you to have is at his disposal. And he will not withhold any good thing from you. That's what that donkey story is about. Psalm 50 reminds us that every beast of the forest, the cattle on a thousand hills, all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is God's. How much? All of it. All of it. And so too is every donkey that is tied to a post or anything else that God chooses to use for his glory and our good. So trust him and obey him. Continuing in verses 35 through 36. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it, and he rode along. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now Luke does not get into specifically how large the crowds leading into Jerusalem were, but in John's gospel, we learn that the number of Jesus' followers and his enemies had increased. Listen to John 12, beginning in verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, there being Bethany, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So I don't know if you caught this or not, but the religious leaders of the day were coming to kill poor Lazarus again because people were following Jesus over the fact that he had been resurrected. So in one large crowd at the Sheep's Gate of Jerusalem, there were two very distinct groups. And I don't know that as we picture Palm Sunday in our minds, we picture it this way. I think we've seen a lot of movies and a lot of TV shows that kind of show this jubilant crowd, but we don't see a lot of the enemies, do we? We don't see a lot of opposition. And yet, Scripture tells us that that's exactly what we found. So there were two distinct groups. The many who witnessed Lazarus being raised from the dead, praising Jesus for the many miracles they had seen. And then a smaller group of powerful religious leaders who were angry with Jesus because people were abandoning them to follow him. So the first group wanted Jesus as their king, while the other group, the religious group, wanted him dead. Jesus had been in public ministry for about three years at this point, and he had spent most of that time not seeking worship. 
walking from place to place and really trying to avoid any attention that kept him from his mission. How often do we see Jesus telling people who had had miracles performed for them to be quiet? But on this day, on this day that we call Palm Sunday, a day where the threats against him were at their highest, Jesus gladly received adoration and he gladly received worship. And he avoided the dusty roads he usually walked along by sitting atop a donkey with a significant amount of attention on him. So what in the world has changed? What has caused that shift? Well, here's the answer. The fulfillment of Jesus' true purpose in coming his death and his resurrection was drawing near. The time had come. Jesus had purposely kept a low profile until now because his detractors wanted him dead. But his time for dying had not yet come. And so he told people to be quiet and he avoided some of the larger crowds. But here we find ourselves in Luke 19 and the day had arrived and the time had come and so he allowed his followers to stir and to sing his praises while his enemies plotted his impending death and stir they did and plot they did verse 36 tells us that his disciples in particular spread their cloaks on the road. And I think that we need to read that verse without our Western eyes because it doesn't make any sense to us. It, I mean, if we were to be in a modern time, this is not the equivalent of you and I putting our coats down. You see, for many of the people in Jesus' day, a cloak was likely the only, and certainly it was, the most expensive article of clothing that they owned. So imagine that you only had one coat. Or imagine that that coat was extraordinarily expensive. Are you laying it down on the road for a donkey to trample over? To throw off one's cloak or to lay it down before Jesus could have very well been an act of worship. And it was most certainly, most certainly, a gesture of submission. So it was an act of worship, and it was an act, a gesture of submission. To lay down the best and maybe the only valuable piece of clothing that you owned was to say to the one who walked upon it, I am under you. Do as you will. I am under you. Do as you will. That's what we see in the gesture of laying the cloaks before Jesus on the road. Continuing in verses 37 and 38. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So it is in these two verses where we will spend the bulk of our time today answering three questions that these two verses answer. Who was shouting? What 
were they shouting? And why were they shouting it? Who was shouting? What were they shouting? And why were they shouting it? So who was shouting? Luke's account describes the crowd as the whole multitude of his disciples. And very likely, he wasn't just referring to Peter, James, and John, or even the 12 who are the most well-known and were ultimately later made apostles. He might not have even been limiting it to the 72 that Jesus sent out in Luke 10 on mission. By using the word multitude, Luke was likely referring to the hundreds, maybe the thousands, who followed and were instructed by Christ. Remember that when Jesus rose again, he appeared to 500 other brothers and sisters. So there were at least hundreds. But no matter how big the multitude, they weren't the only ones traveling to Jerusalem. Certainly not at Passover. Jerusalem was never so busy as during the time of Passover. And as we mentioned earlier, Jesus had also accrued a strong contingent of enemies. In addition to the multitudes who were throwing down their cloaks and shouting words of praise at Jesus, there were just as many who wanted to kill him and would be shouting, crucify him in just a few days' time. So this isn't quite the full celebration that it is traditionally made out to be. So the second question is, is what were the crowds shouting? Verse 38 says that they were crying out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But if you have spent any time in church on Palm Sunday, you know that there is one famous word that Luke's account does not cover that the crowds who praised Jesus had used. In Mark chapter 9, we read, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So in all the gospel accounts, we have two major themes and utterances from the crowd. Hosanna and blessed is he. Each of them with some variation. Hosanna is a shout of exclamation that is made up of two Hebrew words. The word yasha means to save or deliver. And ana means please, I beseech. So as the crowd cried, Hosanna, they were saying unto Jesus, please save us. Please save us. Now saved is a word that Christians use fairly often. But I I wonder, I wonder if believers, much less non-believers, really understand what that word means The word saved, as used in the word of God, carries with it the connotation of rescue, of deliverance, of being set free. And implicit in each of those definitions is that the one being saved is in danger or imprisoned in some way. Conversely, a person who is not in danger or not imprisoned has no need of being saved, right? But this crowd, from their cries of Hosanna, 
believed that they needed to be saved from something, that they needed to be rescued and delivered and set free. But saved from what? Saved from what? So let's hold that thought for just a bit. We will get to it. So we've talked about the idea that Hosanna is a cry of salvation. And by adding in the highest to the word Hosanna was to recognize that the blessing of this salvation could only come from heaven. This was not Hosanna to somebody else. This was Hosanna in the highest. Let the salvation come from heaven. And both Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, all of which they shouted were phrases that found their roots in the Old Testaments and the Psalms. They are declarations that God's Messiah and his kingdom are coming and even now have come. The people of Israel knew that God had promised a kingdom in which his Messiah would reign. A kingdom of peace and glory. A kingdom promised to David and his descendant who would be the Messiah. One who would be both David's son and David's Lord. That's who this descendant would be. So these were messianic acclamations. And Jesus Christ in this story is the subject and the fulfillment of all of them. Do you realize what they are saying unto him and why they are saying it? So this leads us ultimately then to the third question found in this passage, which was, why were they shouting these things now? Who was shouting them? What were they shouting? And why were they shouting them now? Well, Jesus began his final week on earth during Passover in the year A.D. 30, plus or minus. More specifically, Jesus entered Jerusalem on the 10th day of the month when Passover was observed. So this is a very specific time that he entered. And this 10th day of that month was what Jews referred to as Lamb Selection Day. Lamb Selection Day was a part of the Passover festival. The day in which the Passover lamb for that particular year would be chosen. And we as Christians call that day Palm Sunday. So for Christians, Palm Sunday is Lamb Selection Day in view of the Passover. And just like a Passover lamb, Jesus was inspected, and he was chosen by the people of Israel, his disciples, as he rode the donkey into the holy city, heralding him as God's Messiah. But the Israelites falsely believed that their greatest enemy was Rome and the occupation of their nation. And it was Roman occupation they wanted to be saved from. So when they were crying Hosanna, it was, save us from the Romans. Save us from this persecution. Save us from the fact that we don't have our own nation. And it was Rome's defeat and the reestablishment of Israel's sovereignty 
that they expected Jesus to bring. That's what they thought Jesus was coming to bring as he rode in on a donkey. But my friends, Rome was not Israel's greatest threat. Rome was not their biggest problem. And Jesus did not come to be a militaristic king. He did not come to free Israel from Roman rule. And similarly, similarly, he has not come to save, deliver, and rescue you and me from our political struggles or from our earthly woes. What are the things that you think are the biggest problems in your life right now? Is it earthly in nature? Is it political in nature? Is it about your comfort? He has not come to save you from those things. He came to save Israel, and he came to save you and me from the power of sin which enslaves us, and from the punishment of sin, which kills us. Because, my friends, there is no greater enemy than our sin, which enslaves us, leads to death, and separates us from God. Can you imagine a greater enemy? And, my friends, hear me on this. Until we believe that, until we believe that we have no greater enemy than sin and death, we will never cry Hosanna. And we will never see Jesus as our only Savior. We will never stand in awe of the cross that he suffered on, and we will never praise him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If we don't believe that we need to be saved... Why in the world would we look to a Savior? So on Lamb Selection Day in Jerusalem, in A.D. 30, that particular year, two Passover lambs were chosen. And on the Friday of that same week, the day that we call Good Friday, those two Passover lambs would be sacrificed for the sins of his people. But... But only one, only one of those lambs would take away all the sins of those who believed in him, past, present, and future. And of those two lambs, of those two Passover lambs, only one would be able to forgive the sins of his people for all time, and only one would rise again three days later. Jesus is the fulfillment of every Passover lamb that came before him. And he is the only Passover lamb that this world needs going forward. In A.D. 30, God's people were living in dark days, largely unaware that the light of the world, God's Passover lamb, has come. Did you hear our call to worship this morning? That the world did not recognize him and the world did not embrace him But in him, 
was the fulfillment of every prophecy that was made regarding God's Messiah. Crowds followed him, yes, but they misunderstood who he truly was and why he came. And as such, he was surrounded by people who were looking for a conquering Messiah and a miracle worker. He was chased down by jealous religious leaders who were threatened by his popularity and wanted him dead, but he remained resolute. Jesus knew who he was, and he knew why he came. He entered the very city where he knew he would be rejected and killed by its leaders, and that even his most devoted followers would abandon him for a time. So Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday was very similar to his birth and to his resurrection and to his ascension in that each of those moments was extraordinarily magnificent and miraculous and powerful, far more so than anything else that we tend to make so much of here on earth. And yet, for all intents and purposes, each of those moments occurred in relative obscurity. Without the fanfare that Jesus so rightly deserved. But it will not always be so. It will not always be so. Which leads us to the last two verses of today. Verse 39 and 40. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus' enemies, ironically, the religious leaders of the day, hated that Jesus was making the messianic claims that he was making in the manner of his arrival, riding atop a donkey. They hated that he was receiving the praise that they had longed for and that the people were following him instead of them. And in the Gospel of John, we are given this insight into the heart of the Pharisees. Listen. The reason why the crowd went to meet Jesus was that they heard he had raised Lazarus from the dead. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The world has gone after him. So when Jesus ascended to his father and he sat down at his right hand, being given the name that is above all names, heaven declared him king of kings. Heaven declared him king of kings. And one day, when Jesus returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And when he returns, he will not be returning on top of a donkey, but riding on a white horse with king of kings and lord of lords tattooed on his thigh. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord and that he is king of both heaven and earth. And by the way, so will all of God's creation, including the stones. Psalm 148 says, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above 
earth and heaven. Scripture often makes clear that creation has a way of revealing God to us. Not that creation itself is God, but that creation itself points us to God and, as you just heard, accomplishes his will. And it does so through declaring his majesty and his glory and through declaring his judgment. So it is possible in these last two verses of Luke 19 that Jesus was referencing Habakkuk chapter 2 here in verse 40 where judgment upon Israel is declared. But it is also possible, it is also possible that Jesus was pointing to a day 70 years from the day that he sat upon that donkey and had this conversation. 70 years from the day that religious leaders demanded that the disciples be quiet. A day in which God would use Rome to judge and destroy the holy city of Jerusalem. I mean, just listen to Jesus' words three verses after today's passage ends in Luke 19. Luke 19, verses 43 and 44. For the days will come upon you, Jesus said, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. Listen, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your salvation. My friends, curiously but not surprisingly, Jesus' prophetic words as we just read them came true in AD 70. The stones of Jerusalem's holy temple lay in ruins, not one stone laid upon another, and it declared the glory of God and the judgment of God upon those who rejected his precious son. So unbelieving friend, if you are in this room and you do not know and love and trust Jesus, would you surrender to and trust Christ today that the judgment of God would pass you by in full? And my brothers and sisters in Christ, those of you who have loved and trust Jesus, may we love and honor and praise Christ so frequently and so fiercely that the very stones God has made would not be needed to declare Christ's supremacy. Let's unemploy the stones and do it ourselves. So in Congo, we were greeted with shouts of joy and acclamation, as I had mentioned, but we did not deserve it. We did not deserve that. We could not give them what they most needed We could only tell them of the one who could. And that, my friends, is the heart of the Christian life. To tell others of the one who can save, of the one who did save. So no matter where in this world we find ourselves, whether we are cheered for or whether we are shouted down, we must proclaim Christ and him crucified because he is our only boast. He is the world's only hope. So my friends, will you reject Jesus as the religious leaders did, seeing him as a threat of your own desire to be God? 
Or will you follow Jesus as the curious onlookers did? Not for who he is, but for what he can give you. Or, or, will you surrender to love and follow Jesus as his disciples did? Trusting and believing that he alone is God. That he alone is your Passover lamb, your Lord, your God, and your King. That he alone can answer your shouts for rescue, your shouts of Hosanna. My friends, have you laid down the cloak of your life in glad submission to Jesus? Do you wave the palms that you have been given metaphorically in jubilant adoration for who he is and what he has done on your behalf? Because Jesus Christ alone came to save you and me from our greatest enemies, sin and death, and save us to the eternal life that God made us for. That's what we are saved from, and that's what we are saved to. That is the gospel. That's the what and the why, too, of this Holy Week. So let us give him all our love and all our worship and all of our lives holding nothing back because the life that we have is his. And because, my friends, there is no one and there is nothing more worthy of it. Let's pray. We thank you, our Father, for giving us your Son, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, the Messiah who rescues and redeems us from that which enslaves and kills us, the King who, through his own shed blood and resurrected body, was given the name that is over every name and will rule and reign forever for our joy and for his glory. Father, while his coming on Palm Sunday may not have been as triumphant as it should have been, we rejoice in knowing that in his second coming he will receive the glory he is due on earth as it already is in heaven. We thank you, Jesus, that in you we have our salvation, saved from sin and saved from death and saved to life, that we are free to do as we ought, not as we would. Let our thoughts, words, and deeds honor you in every way. We thank you, Jesus, that you left the glory of heaven for a, a humble stall, knowing what lay before you in full. It stuns us to know that your love for us is so great that you would look to the horror of the cross and see within it the joy of being with us. Would you open the eyes and the minds of those who have heard these stories but have not yet seen or understood? Renew those of us who have seen and understood but have lost the initial joy of our salvation or live in disobedience to it. Would you help us to know and see your incomparable beauty? You alone, Lord, are the light of this world, and by your spirit, your light lives within us. May it be seen through us this week and always. Hosanna in the highest to you, Lord Jesus, for your sake, your name, and your glory we ask. Amen.